to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. It's widely believed that trans and queer people are wired differently from birth. In a new book titled Gender Without Identity, psychoanalysts Avi Sakatopoulou and Anne Pellegrini challenged that argument that's made often by rights advocates and members of the LGBT community. It's published by Unconscious in Translation Press and brings Avi Sakatopoulou and Anne Pellegrini to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's begin with you, Avi. Many gay people say, I was born this way. Why do you think they believe they've been wired that way since birth? Especially this is such since a you terrific that's question. Nonsensical. Thank you for starting us out with such a strong query. Um, I, I, I should start by situating ourselves first as authors. Uh, we are both clinical psychoanalysts uh, working with the queer and trans community for many years and are queer identified ourselves. So you're gay. And, so th- th- that gives you insight, you think? Well, it gives us certainly a lot of experience in working with a range of different genders and sexualities in ways that are affirmative. Um, so it's kind of like gives us a head start in thinking about this, not just theoretically, but also from clinical experience day to day. So you say it's nonsensical to say I was born this way. Why? Well, here's here's the trick. Uh, for a very, very long time, the story has been that there is one right gender that is kind of like one right way of being gender being cis and binary and one right way to be uh, sexual, which is to be heterosexual. And the expansive argument against that has been actually trans people and gender non-binary people and gay people and queer people are also born that way. So it's just different wiring. And we should extend the the recognition that is given to cis and straight people also to trans and queer people by virtue of the fact that they too are born this way. But what uh, we have found in the clinic is that there are many, many different ways to be and to become queer or trans. And that therefore, the narrative that we have had against um, kind of like the transphobia and homophobia in general culture, but also in clinical domains, which is to argue that um, that queer and trans people are also born this way, is 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 wildly, wildly and widely insufficient. So we have wanted in our book Gender Without Identity to offer a way of thinking about how queer and trans people can become queer and become trans without that meaning that we have to tip into transphobia or conversion practices. So do the things that determine our sexuality occur before we're even aware that they're happening? And uh, is age a factor? Well, certainly they happen outside of our awareness. We're both psychoanalysts, and that means that we think with the unconscious, which we find to be a tremendous resource. Uh, But I should also be very clear that when we are arguing against the born this way rhetoric, we are not trying to um, codify how people tell the story of themselves. We believe that any individual, and especially individuals who come from oppressed minorities, should be able to tell their own stories and have their own understandings of where they came from and how they became who they are. And Born This Way is certainly one such narrative, and it applies for some people, but it doesn't apply for everyone. And is there any evidence that suggests parenting or early childhood experiences play a role with regard to sexual orientation? Because you argue that trauma may play a part in the formation of queer or trans experience. 
Yes. Yeah, so I think we need to be very careful here. Yeah. We think that parenting and the exposure to other kinds of influences could play a part in anyone's sexuality, in anyone's gender. And in fact, we think it does play a part in all sexualities, in all genders. This isn't just about queer people or trans people. Cis and people part as of well. The, absolutely. And part of the blackmail that Avi and I are arguing against in this book is the following. We have two main arguments um, about gender and sexuality in our culture. And I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but I think these are two main strands. One of them, as Avi said, is that everybody is naturally, um, whether biologically or through some the, the nature given us by God, somehow we're naturally straight and naturally binary, what is, we also now use the language of cisgender. And that's how everybody should be. And if you come to believe you're queer or trans, this is a mistaken belief, and you've been warped. This is a warped this way argument. That's the language Avi and I are using. As against that, it has seemed necessary for many queer and trans people to stake our right to exist on the claim that we were born this way too. And that this is just a benign human variation, just right. like some people are born straight, some people are born cis, others are born queer and born trans. And it is seen as if the born this way argument is the only thing we can offer as a way to defend our right to legal existence, to social existence. But and so, doesn't it manifest that's itself a very early in a lot of people? I remember kids I went to school with in elementary school who were already quite obviously uh, gay. And one kid, uh, the boys used to tease and say, will you be my girlfriend? Well, that's certainly the case for some people. Some people can look back on their childhoods and find that there was evidence of early forms of their sexuality or their gender very from very young. But that is not the case for everyone. And in fact, for those people for whom their, especially their genders develop later in life, um, sometimes in adolescence or adulthood or even late adulthood, mm -hmm. these are the people who we find today are very much put in the um, kind of like are, are, have a target on their back. Uh, these are the people who are most frequently questioned about whether they have their gender kind of like questioned, invalidated, uh, delegitimized. So we wanted to offer ways of thinking about how one can come into a gender later in life without that meaning that there's something inauthentic or wrong about that gender. Again, caused by trauma. What kind of trauma are we talking about? All right. One of the things we're saying, and this might seem quite counterintuitive, right? If there is a homophobic and a transphobic version of the claim that there's a relationship between trauma and queerness and trauma and transness, and, and that transphobic and homophobic version goes something like this. Again, if you think you're queer and you think you're trans, you're mistaken. You only think you're this way because some bad thing happened to you, whether it was some traumatic event bad parenting, some kind of deficit, trauma made you this way. And if you, if you correct the trauma, if you address the trauma, you'll fix the gender and fix the sexuality and return the person to how they should be, cisgender and heterosexual, right? So again, there's been a longstanding transphobic and homophobic understanding of the relationship between trauma and queerness and transness. We're making the somewhat counterintuitive claim that there may indeed be a relationship between trauma and some experiences of transness and queerness. Indeed, trauma may even have a share in the way that some people develop their gender and develop their sexuality. But we're saying this not just with respect to queerness and transness, but all gender. All gender, we argue in the book, has some relationship to trauma. 
And maybe Abhi, I think you you developed some really wonderful and concrete examples of how this works, even with respect to cisgender. Yes, I think that it's very important to remember that you know we have right now there's there's this fantasy this fiction we would say in larger culture that there is a true gender at the core of oneself and um um, and that that gender comes about just by nature of who we are but through a very careful um tracking of how gender how we come to acquire our genders maybe a strange locution to hear that we acquire our genders rather than we are our genders. What we do in the book is track what are the ways in which people can acquire a gender, cis people, trans people, everybody. And trauma we have come to find also in sitting with patients um, is, is one of the ways in which people acquire their gender. And just to give a very concrete example, when it comes to thinking about cisgenders, if we think for a moment about um, people who are assigned female at birth and identify as women, meaning cisgendered women, um, part of how women come to understand their gender, experience their gender, and live into their gender runs also inevitably through the um, soft and harder violations that come with patriarchy, with sexism, even with sexual violence. So there's a long tradition in feminism in thinking about how women, the texture of female genders runs through the ways in which women are subjected to the male gaze, uh, to unwanted touch, to being uh, fetishized or criminalized in some ways. And all of this is baked into how women understand their gender. So we have wanted to take this already very complex and nuanced way of thinking about cisgenders and extend it to thinking about trans and non-binary genders, partly because we have, we have a lot of concerns about how trauma is weaponized when it comes to trans and non-binary genders in ways that it isn't when it comes to uh, normative masculinities and femininities. And we wanted to extend the resource of thinking with trauma as opposed to trauma as a warping of the true self, uh, to think with trauma also for um, non-normative genders and sexualities. Why do you say it's politically urgent to begin talking more openly about how trauma may play that role? Well, partly where we've ceded the territory to conservative opponents of, of transgender children in particular. Um, we've allowed people who are opposed to gender affirmative care for trans children and, and also for trans adults. We are allowing people who are uh, opposed to queer forms of life to dominate the discussion when it comes to thinking about trauma, right? And so we, we need to offer other ways of thinking about the relationship between trauma and sexuality and gender. So that's one thing to say. And the other is that we're, we, you know, again, we're clinicians, we sit, in the room with people once a week, twice a week, in some instances, three or four times, we're hearing people talk about their experiences of coming into gender and coming into their sexual desires in ways that often indicate that there's some trauma that they've experienced. And that trauma does not invalidate their gender. It doesn't invalidate their sexuality. In fact, what's amazing and actually quite hopeful is the things people can do with their trauma, the things that have happened to them, to use these events that one would not have wished to have happened, but to churn them into something new, to spin them into a form of life, could be trans, could be non-binary, could be cisgender for that matter, a form of life that is a fit for them, a gender that fits for them. People do things with trauma 
And trauma need not be the end of us. That's the other thing. We're also intervening in the ways in which trauma is thought about in our culture. Here, um, we're really dependent on an argument Avi has developed separately in some of her own work about trauma. But we're really, this is an important intervention into the ways in which right now we're being told we're being told the only way we can argue on behalf of queer and trans life, which is under such threat, made more than 500 bills introduced into state legislatures in this country this year that would um, circumscribe, restrict, limit yeah. queer and trans existence. In the face of this violence, we've been told the only way we can, we can defend queer and trans life is to say born this way. It's just not true. This is not the experience that so many of us queer and trans people have of ourselves. We have to make room for broader stories. We have to make room for more complex and often more difficult ways of telling the story of queer and trans life. You've dedicated this book to Ori. Who's he and how does he fit into what we're talking about? Mm. Ori is a child that um, I saw um, in treatment uh, for a little bit of time and whose family I worked with. And Ori is a very uh, special, marvelous, and unusual, in some ways, child, both very usual and very unusual. Um, Ori was a gender nonconforming assigned male at birth child who presented with kind of like a very pronounced and really delightful version of femininity, which really panicked his parents and panicked his surroundings. And we offer in great detail this clinical case to help the reader begin to see how complex psychic life can be around how gender is produced, how gender is experienced, and also how much effort it takes for a child to be able to not just express different parts of themselves through gender, but also find ways to relate to intergenerational history, to religion, to race, to their own past, to what to what parents bring to their children's lives that usually seen as compromising them, like the parents' own trauma, the parents' own difficulties, and what what a set of delightful concoctions can come out of that. And so we have we have dedicated the book to orient to children like him who are under such brutal attack right now on the legislative level and also in, in the clinical domain. My guests on today's Leonard Lopez at Large are Avi Sakatupulu and Anne Pellegrini. Their book, Gender Without Identity, from Unconscious and Translation Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. You've included an essay by the late French psychoanalyst Jean Laplanche in your book. Why? Didn't he propose a reformulation of Freud's seduction theory? How does that apply? Oh, that's uh, that's a really cool question. Um, he did actually oppose a reformulation, and you know, if if this was a psychoanalytic um, uh, show, we would I would get really into the weeds of that. But but here's here's um, an answer that I think will be accessible even to people who are not psychoanalytically trained. Um, Jean Laplanche, who is um, a French uh, psychoanalyst. Um, offered a theory of gender and a way of thinking about gender that we find to be extremely generative and to take us out of the constrictions of binary gender or expansive gender as a symptom of something else that, well, you know, this is kind of like the best that one can do, can deal with their symptom or learn to enjoy their symptom. He offers a way of 
conceptualizing gender becoming and recalibrating how we think about gender that we then put in conversation in our book with trans of color critique, uh, trans negativity, and recent developments in queer theory that really promise to blow up and blow out onto kind of like funnel out to more um, generative ways of thinking about gender. And we have needed psychoanalysis to do that. So we turned to him because he's offering uh, proposes that the the internal, what we experience as internal, what you were asking earlier, what about people who feel that they were born this way, that he, he shows us how it comes to be that we experience things that we have crafted as being our own, how it how they come to feel to us like they belong to us and they capture something about our true self, even though they're always already inflected by culture, they're inflected by that which others bring to us, our parents' understandings of our gender. All of that is swirled into what one makes of their gender. And some parents are accepting of the situation. Others are quite upset. Absolutely. And we want to give parents the room to to have whatever feelings they have, but also to become curious about their own fears and their own anxieties and their own sometimes uses of their children as narcissistic extensions of themselves. Some people are obviously gay from a very early age, some later, and for some it's never ever evident. In fact, a fair number of uh, sex symbols, movie stars, male and female, turned out to be gay, we found out later. Yes, I mean, and also, you know, I think I'm going to think about the language of some people are are obviously gay at an early age. I want to think about obviously to whom, you know, maybe maybe we can distinguish between um, people who have an early understanding of themselves as being different and how their gender feels to them or different in terms of how they desire. They're aware that they live in a world where you're, if you are, uh, if you're called a girl, you're supposed to like boys. If you're called a boy, you're supposed to like girls. I mean, children early on learn the codes of the culture, what they're supposed to be, how they're supposed to act in the world. So there's, you know, very, very many people will from early on have an experience of themselves as being, let's say, at odds with that or a slant to it. Um, but it might not be obvious to others. That's why I'm, I'm trying to like carefully parse the difference between obviously to oneself and obviously to others. Uh, we, you know, we, we certainly have to deal with all sorts of social stereotypes about what a manly man is supposed to be manly, what a womanly woman is supposed to be womanly. And there are certainly cisgender women whose gender is atypical, right? Isn't um, sort of typically feminine, right? Uh, But Mm. these women might well identify as cis, right? So there's even variation within so-called binary genders too. I suspect a number of our listeners may want to join in on this discussion. Would you like to talk to some of them? Our that would be wonderful. Our yeah. call-in number is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Um, you write, I'm quoting, there's nothing wrong with being gay, queer, gender, nonconforming, or trans, nor is any of these an undesirable or pathological outcome. So why do you think so many people disagree with that, especially conservative politicians and the Christian right? Indeed. And, and I, I'm so glad you read that sentence. 
the starting point for our book is that there's nothing wrong with being queer or trans, and there's no, no wrong way to become queer or trans. That is, this book is dedicated to the flourishing of queer and trans life. And I think that for so many people, whether they're conservative politicians or, um, you know, sort of people living who are politicians, right, we get scared. We get scared by things that are new to us. And I say new to us because queer and trans people have been around for a long, long time. Queer and trans people are not new. But there is certainly increased visibility of queer and trans people. And I think sometimes in the face of, of a phenomenon that appears to be new, people's fear kicks in. And one of the ways we deal with our fear all too often is to we experience that fear as a threat that's trying to do something to us. And then we think we are entitled because this fear, this new scary thing is threatening us. And since we're being threatened, we're now the ones under assault. We develop strategies to attack those that are threatening us. So we even craft legislation that we think is defending ourselves and our traditional ways of life, traditional genders, traditional sexualities. We even craft legislation that these conservative, I'm saying the we of conservatives, right? We craft legislation that's supposedly protecting children, protecting children from themselves, right? The fear becomes threat becomes we must defend ourselves against those who are threatening us. It's a really vicious circle and it treats the people who are being legislatively attacked as the, as the ones attacking us. Well, it's they're attacked in ways that go beyond just simply being criticized. 19 states have banned gender-affirming care for minors. So like many, like abortion seekers, do they have to go elsewhere? The, some, well, some states ban puberty blockers and hormone treatment for minors. Yes, yes. And, and part of what we are seeing kind of like very fresh off the, the press, so to speak, in the last few days is that some of these bans are now being found to be unconstitutional, as we legally expect that they would be and hope that more of this will um, hold up in courts that are contesting this kind of legislation. Um, and what I would like to also add to what Anne was just saying is that part of what generates that fear is that this contact with difference, this contact with different ways of being in one's gender or in one's sexuality can also generate a lot of fear because they, they open up the possibilities that one's own gender may also be different or could become different, that what we have been told as, as as children in our cultures, in our books, what in our in our medical textbooks are the ways to be prove in the in the aftermath, prove after the fact to have been insufficient. And I, I remember a, a, a student of mine who said to me that in coming to understand more about um, how gender can work, that they felt that there they had been. Uh, almost kind of like magnetized into thinking about gender much more in a much more constricting way and that they felt that could quite upset both excited and upset at realizing that actually the possibilities are much larger now this upset can feel really energizing to some people and some people respond to it by doubling down and saying actually i am not upset you're driving me crazy i am not feeling disturbed by this you are doing something disturbing and this is this is a mechanism that in psychoanalysis we call projection like turning something that is upsetting in oneself into the upset that the other person is causing which Anne was also speaking to there are also and i think it's also go ahead Oh, yeah, I think it's also worth adding because you brought up uh, very importantly, you brought up a link between 
the bans that are happening, you know, in states to ban gender affirmative care for trans children and what well, we're seeing bathrooms. nationwide with various states, bathroom ban bills, also bans on abortion that are happening in a number of states. The attack on abortion rights and reproductive freedom more generally, because contraceptives are also in the line of sight. This is not a thing apart from the attack on trans children and trans adults. Both of them represent an attempt to conserve gender and conserve sexuality and conserve the family in the most conservative form possible. And I know I'm doubling this language, conserving the conservative. It's about preserving a traditional model of family. And it's a traditional model of family that is itself a pretty recent historical invention. But this, these two things go together, the attack on abortion rights and the attack on trans. And it's very important to hold this together because otherwise we get our political attention too much divided. We have to see these as connected struggles. And I would also just add, since you brought up the bathroom bills, there's a long history of attack that focuses on bathrooms. And right now we're seeing some states attempting to put into law bills that would restrict um, you, you can only, in these are public restrooms, you must use the bathroom that accords with the sex written on your birth certificate. And if you don't do so, you can be charged with a criminal offense. If you don't use the bathroom that is on, that aligns with the sex written on your birth certificate, then um, you could be arrested. What psychological impact do you think those things are having on gay and, and trans children? Well, one of the things the bathroom bills are doing, right, and they're, they're in, the intent is to do this, is to make it impossible for trans people and gender nonconforming people to appear in public life. Because to deny people access to the use of public restrooms is actually to delimit their ability to take up public space. And, and these are also really genocidal policies, like so, so many of these policies have the effect of targeting disproportionately populations um, marked by their difference in gender and sexuality um, as a way of eradicating them. And I think that it is it is not hyperbolic to say this, and it is incredibly important to be attuned to the ethics of these kinds of interventions. Now, in the larger domain, these play out through bathroom bills, through restrictions on uh, athletic competitions and participation, um, certainly on, on the bans on trans health care. In, in the smaller, more microcosm um, aspect of our daily day-to-day -day interactions or the clinic, they happen by these ongoing quote-unquote debates about the validity of, of trans life, as if this is there's something normal or even acceptable about debating whether the validity of people existing um, is, is uh, that this is something that is acceptable. We have a number of uh, listeners who've called in to join this conversation. Should we take a call? Terrific. BAI, you're on the air. Daryl McPherson, Bronx, New York. Thank you so much, Lennon, for opening up the lines on a very complicated social subject. Yeah. Is that okay, all you... Okay, question. Uh, is, it, is it because of the ignorance of the human body, the difference between sexuality, gender, uh, or I should say sex, gender, sex and gender... Um, and the unwillingness and, and the fear that, you mean I could be one of them? Part of the challenge that we're looking at, because I hear uh, politicians talking about things, especially with regard to the transgender child, that 
make absolutely zero sense from a medical point of view. Yeah. I mean, that's such a good point. They make zero sense from a medical point of view. As a psychoanalyst, I will tell you they make zero sense from a psychoanalytic point of view. They make zero rational sense. And one of the panics that is now taking up the the country, I think, rippling through the country, is the, the panic that legislators are trying to legislate out of existence about whose child will be, is, will be, or will become trans. And there's this fantasy that if this is restricted, if care is restricted, if access to information is restricted, if books are banned, if um, clinicians are criminalized for offering these cares, there's a way to stop the diversity of human life from expressing itself. So the fear that you're talking about is very important. Um, I I wouldn't personally say that there's this way in which we have divided gender and sexuality, and that has been very important to do in order to understand the difference of gender from from the sexual per se. But but there are also ways in which this kind of division has not served us well in understanding the interimplication between gender and sexuality. And that's a part of what we argue in our book and try to speak very clearly to is how homophobic panics and transphobic panics share a lot of their um, grammar. So we we actually begin to talk about the notion of homotransphobia, not to diminish the differences between gay and trans people, but to actually speak about how there are in intersecting lines between these kinds of experiences that we we need to remain attentive to. I have to take a little break, but uh, when we come back, we'll take more calls. We have listeners hanging on. Please be patient. We'll be back. Try to take all the calls. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Avi Sakadupulu and Anne Pellegrini. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of their book, Gender Without Identity. To do that, just call 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. During today's show, we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org. But don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we thank you very much. In return to Avi Sakatopoulou and Anne Pellegrini. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Hello? Yes, you are. Thank you. Oh, good. Their book, Gender Without Identity, is published by the Unconscious in Translation Press. Uh, Ms. Sakatopoulou is a psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City and connected to NYU. And uh, Ms. Pellegrini is a professor of performance studies and social cultural analysis at NYU. And we're taking your calls at 212-209-2877. Let's go to one of those calls. BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. 
Yes, you're there. Yes. I, uh, before this program, I thought that cisgender basically tells quite obviously what sex a person might be. For instance, obviously male or female. Before this program, but now you're, you're, you're questioning that? What are you trying to say? Well, um, I might have heard something to the contrary. So, you know, I was just, I guess, trying to make sure. Either of you want to respond? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to clarify that. And I really appreciate the opportunity to do so because we're in the midst not only of an expansion and gendered possibilities, but also vocabulary, language is trying to catch up with what can sometimes be this, these dizzying changes. So the word cisgender has actually been around since around, I think, 1994. And it was devised actually by some trans activists as a way to describe people that are normatively gendered, right? Because we had vocabulary to describe people who are atypically gendered, whether that vocabulary was transgender, for example, or genderqueer. And if you were typically gendered, well, you just got to have gender, right? You got to walk around in the world without having to think about your gender in the same way. So cisgender was a term that was meant to describe people who were, whose um, sex ascribed at birth, which is usually a binary assignment of male or female, that the sex ascribed at birth was in alignment with the experience of gender that person came to have. So there would be an alignment between being ascribed female at birth, for example, and feeling oneself to be a girl who will grow into being a woman. And not only that, a further alignment in the ways in which others in the world see you and respond to you. So cisgender is the picture of this kind of, again, alignment between sex ascribed at birth, the gender identity of the one who has been ascribed as female or male, and how, again, how others receive you. So it's a kind of um, a perfect set, right? And I hope that, is that clarifying for, for the caller? Well, it seems to align with what I was thinking before. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thank you for your call. Let's go to another call. BAI, you're on the air. Good afternoon. Thank you. I'm in Brooklyn. I'm a mother of a non-binary teenager who was assigned female at birth. Um, they present very feminine uh, and they and and they are not out to their father. They are out to their friends and teachers at school. Um, and I have a sister who was always very liberal. I've been learning a lot about this um, about gender and and my sister's been very exposed to a lot of uh, right-wing stuff that's trying to protect children from trans. And the issue that my sister brings up that it's hard to argue, and I'd like your thoughts on it, is there's a lot of videos of trans young adults who regret doing hormone therapy or surgery and um, my thoughts on it are, you know, they live to regret it. So many children are not given access to these things and they commit suicide and it's a very rare and, but 
um, what they're saying is that the medical industry is is luring children into hormone therapy, getting them, you know, hooked on these hormones and medications for their life so that they can make a lot of money off children. And also it's um, trendy and cool to be trans, so kids are, are getting into it. So what is... You, and and my argument against that is most people are ostracized and and bullied for for being trans. But there are some artistic com- communities that it is very accepted, especially in New York City. Um, so, what are your thoughts on that? Thank you. Thank you for yeah. your call. And thank you, thank you for that question, which um, I, I will speak as somebody who works with children and has worked with many, many families asking the sorts of questions that you're asking. So this is kind of like critical at this moment in time to have this conversation because um, there is, yeah, yeah. of course, I mean, we know this, but I will say this because it needs to be repeated, that the rates of anxiety, depressive disorders, um, and, and, and a host of other emotional sequela follow children who are, um, and we have research that shows this, who are not allowed to live in the gender that they understand themselves to have. Um, at the same time, there is this tremendous anxiety culture, culturally wide that the gender is something that you can catch on the internet uh, or that you can catch if you are hanging out with the wrong people or in the wrong sites. And this idea that gender is kind of like contagious in, in, a, in this straightforward way is, is not just not supported by research. It's also not true, even though what is true is that seeing people around you that live in a variety of different ways is certainly um, uh, it's certainly uh, a, a, a way for you to see that a, a, a range of different ways of being is possible and acceptable and wantable. So while I cannot obviously give advice to any one parent, given that I don't know your child and I don't know your family, what I would say is that it is incredibly important to not get... Um, to attend to your child, to the individuality and singularity of your child, what do you know about your child, what your child is telling you, um, the difficulty that your child has in articulating themselves to, to their father, in um, being out in the world as who they understand themselves to be is, is worthy of your attention and your time and your support and your child is worth the dignity that is routinely afforded to cis children who are saying that don't even have to make the claim of understanding themselves and their gender. As as for the question of regret, I think that you know part of why we're offering this way of thinking about gender, not as something that is, you know, there is one true gender and what we need to do, an authentic gender uh, to any one person, and all they need to do is just discover what they are and go with that. Part of why we're saying that this is an insufficient model is because gender also shapeshifts in the course of one's life. Um, for some people, it stays stable, and for some people, it doesn't. But that is not the same thing as regret. That is not the same thing as somebody got it wrong. And if the parents had been attentive or more restrictive, or if the doctors had withheld uh, medication, then that person would have never had to transition and never had to detransition. That's where the conversation about regret is going. Um, 
I think that it it is more useful and at times much more productive to think of one's child as being in the gender that one is at the moment that the claim is made and that is being supported in the ways that the child is needing to be supported while also keeping open the possibility that gender could shift again. Now, that doesn't happen for most children, but it does happen for some. And that's not about you as a parent getting it wrong or being inattentive or not being serious about the support that you're giving them. But it's about being with them every step of the way and trying to predict as if one could whether one's child will regret getting on being on hormones, whether they will um, want this or that in the future, is, is to play and I'll say this with a lot of seriousness, is to play God and try to imagine that one can anticipate the future when, in fact, this kind of experiences unfold in true time. And the most important thing for your child is to feel, as, as they seem to already do, given that they're, they're talking to you about something that they have trouble talking to somebody, to another parent about, to their other parent, to continue to support them and be present with them and not be deterred by the anxieties of um, kind of like regret, uh, which are right now rippling through the country. My guests on today's would- Leonard Lopez at Large are psychoanalysts Avi Sakadopoulou and Anne Pellegrini. Their book, Gender Without Identity, is published by Unconscious in Translation Press. And this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org. Forgive me for interrupting. What were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say something else that um, your caller just brought up is there are these stories circulating that somehow there's this medical industrial complex that's like tricking children into thinking they're trans and deceiving parents to support those children so that doctors can just like rake in what thousands and thousands of dollars offering puberty blockers and hormones and, and eventually surgeries. This is just factually not correct. But hasn't the uh, area fact, of psychoanalysis had a checkered past in dealing with the LGBTQ population? Uh, oh, some, some people seek therapy because they want to be fixed, uh, and, they've, and the whole process is, uh, is to make them straight if they're gay. But most definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, not just a checkered past. I would say that psychoanalysis has had blood on its hands for how it has treated uh, gender and sexual diversity. Um, We uh, kind of like, first of all, I should say very explicitly, conversion treatments are illegal um, in several states. Um, They are for depending on your professional affiliation, they're also part of the ethics code in many professional, in many kind of like designations of professional responsibility. So it is very important to, for your listeners to know if anybody's not aware of it, that a patient who comes in and says, I want you to change my sexual orientation, uh, that that is not something that an ethical, responsible clinician can sign on to. Our goal is not to produce specific results, Uh, gay or straight or cis or trans or otherwise, it's to facilitate patients' own becomings and to help patients become freer from the ways in which culture tells us us and tells them they should be or should not be. Should we take another call? Let's go. BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, good afternoon. Um, I... Uh, okay, it is a complex uh, subject. Personally, I mean, I I think that 
gender, and, gender, which I associate with roles, and sexuality are, are on spectrums. I had the advantage of reading in my uh, 20s uh, John Money and um, the Eckerhart book. And um, while a lot of it is, you know, we did some horrible things, it did open me to think, know that, um, that the thinking and the binary thinking was very limited. Um, and, uh, and that has informed my thinking for the last many, many decades. Um, what, what is interesting to me now and I have question about is what the current conversation and the way gender has been almost hardened, although I hear you saying it, it's open because it's gender without identity, seems to be a reinforcing some concepts of, of femininity and masculinity, which I see basically as conditioned. And not to say that there aren't, aren't behaviors that, that tend to and fit into those definitions, but uh, basing those on somebody's... Um, uh, sex in terms of male and female uh, doesn't seem correct. Like the idea of even identifying somebody as gay based on some physical way they act, and meaning gay, meaning if it's a male, they're uh, attracted to other males or a female to other females, based on how they fit within something that's defined as femininity or masculinity or whatever else. They may or may not be. So that that's my question is more around um, where this uh, instead of liberating where it becomes confining. And in my mind, that in some ways uh, creates some of the, um, the, the, I don't know if it's, well, I think the conflict that's going on is because the country is so polarized, it, it, it's just going to do things, and I don't even know if people necessarily believe them. Uh, BNN, well, well, how do you respond? Yeah, I think, uh, what a fascinating um, comment and, and the questions it opens on to. I mean, I think we do still live in, live, you know, think I'll speak about the United States, right? There's the fantasy that you can tell just by looking that at a glance, two things, you can, at a glance, you can see someone and determine what their quote unquote sex is, or to use the more contemporary language, gender. You can just tell by the way they hold their body, the clothes mm-hmm. they're wearing, the cut of their hair, right? Whether they're masculine the or feminine. Thing, Indeed. And then and we just and we just clinch it into place for saying and if they're masculine or feminine, the masculine must mean they're male and the feminine must mean they're female. We, I mean, we, we have these binary codes that affect how we read bodies. Right. And then the other thing we think we can tell just by looking is whether or not someone is gay or lesbian. And how does that work? Because, oh, there's a person that on one hand, we see that this person should be following this code. It looks like a feminine slash female person, but they're not doing that gender exactly right. Their gender's off. So they must be a lesbian because we know lesbians are all mannish or this guy must be a gay man because we know all gay men are actually feminine. Right. So, again, we have these fantasies of legibility. We can read a body and that body will tell us the truth. It tell us the truth of their gender. It will tell us the truth of their sexuality. And this just isn't correct. We're often wrong in how we read bodies in the world. And when we're wrong, going back to this issue of anxiety or fear, it makes us very anxious. It makes us very scared because what else might we be wrong about, right? So there, I, I absolutely think we've got these binary codes that affect how we see bodies. Um, I'm using putting we in quotes here. And not only that, um, these binary notions about how we read bodies and the demand for legibility do um, are connected to this other fantasy we have, which is that there is a true gender or sex that someone has, a true sexuality that someone has, and not only can we tell by looking, but if you then were to quiz that person, they would be able to tell you the truth of themselves, too. Right? We, we're, we're caught in a, in a rhetoric of truth around gender and sexuality. We're running out of time, but I want to uh, sneak another call in. Okay? okay. BAI. Can I add, 
Let's take the call, and then you can add to it whatever you want to say. BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, hi. Hi. Uh, um, uh, my name is Diana Montford. I'm transgender. I do the Diana Montford show on cable. I have dealt with trans folk all my life. I am trans. I've been trans all my life. I was assigned male at birth, but at two and a half, I was clomping around in my mother's high heels. At three, I was making evening gowns out of her scarves. At seven, my mother, who was exceedingly progressive, bought me makeup because I wanted it. Um, my entire family, my mother, my father, my grandmother, were all very trans-positive. Here's my point. The conservatives are wrong. I'm 67. There was no trans child care in those days. There was no trans-positive literature in those days. Uh, and if grooming worked, we would all be heterosexual, cisgender mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. I, uh, there is no such thing as grooming. You are who you are. And that's the way it is. And it's a shame that these people are trying to legislate their own small-minded fascistic take on gender, especially people like Lindsey Graham, who is known to be gay and transvestite. He is a cross-dresser in private life. That's common knowledge in the uh, LGBTQ community, or at least in the trans community. J. Edgar Hoover, all these people. I mean, and they come out with these oddly doctrinaire ideas about gender. Why do they do this, and how dare they presume to make laws for other people's bodies? Well, thank you for calling in. It's like, I think it's so important to have trans voices in this conversation. Uh, and these are not conversations that should be had without the participation of trans people and genderqueer people. And um, unfortunately, we only have about a minute and a half to two minutes to go. Okay, so I'll say something really quickly. Um, how lucky that you grew up with a family that was supportive and that was able to hold that for you. And how unlucky that so many children do not have that today. One of the things that came up in the previous question, which is very connected to what you're saying, is that the, while on the one hand, we have the born this way argument for, for, for people like the, the notion, you know, John Money came up earlier. And the point that was made was that um, this person felt that, the caller felt that John Money opened up the gates for her to think more expansively about sex. But, but I, and gender, but I think that we should remember that part of what John Money did was to, on the one hand, say that gender is mutable, uh, but also to say that gender can also be imposed by others. And part of the catastrophes that the previous caller was referencing was by virtue of the fact of children being forced to be in one gender or another as a result of a decision of a doctor or a family. So here we have, when, when our present caller Sum says- up, please this is who I've always been, um, that is a very legitimate way of understanding oneself. This is not about other people telling anybody who they are. This self-understandings proceed from, uh, they're off the self and they proceed from the subject who makes them, not from others. Today's guests have been Javier Sakatopoulou and Anne Pellegrini. Uh, their book, Gender Without Identity, is published by Unconscious in Translation Press. And it has been a great pleasure to have you on our show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. 
And thanks to all the people who called in. But that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this this radio show and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI. We are going through a really rough time, and money is tight, and uh, we're very much day-to-day. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give in the number 2 WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing this unique, in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Gender Without Identity. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month, whatever you're comfortable with, and for as long as you're comfortable. Uh, It allows us to plan for the future, and we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because we rely totally on listener donations. We are the only station in the New York radio dial that is 100% listener-sponsored. And please help keep us alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. Uh, We hope that you can join us again tomorrow when my guest Matthew Dalek will discuss his new book, Birchers. How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. We'll see you then.